Happy New Year, everyone. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder, the host of In Sickness and in Health. Since our last episode came out, there's been some big news. The federal budget passed in December includes $25 million for gun violence research. In the first episode of this season, we told the story of the Dickey Amendment. That's the law that, until now, has made it almost impossible for the CDC and NIH to study gun violence as a public health problem. If you want to keep hearing about the most pressing health stories of our time, please consider supporting our show. Go to glow.fm slash health and become a member today. We're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so your donation is tax-deductible. That's glow.fm slash health. Thanks for listening. Now, here's the show. When you're shooting back at people that are shooting at you with these rapid-fire assault weapons, you just learn how powerful they are. When we are bringing a war zone to high schools, that's not protecting the life of liberty of Americans. When you have combat veterans, you know, saying, hey, you know, if we could do a little something to reduce the level of gun violence in America, you know, I would hope people would listen. Welcome back to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about health and social justice. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This season, we're looking at gun violence in America. So for the record, I enlisted in the Marine Corps. My boot camp ship date was October 20th, 2008. Uh, I exited October 19th, 2013. This is Pete Lucier. Pete grew up between St. Louis and Dallas in a military family, a family that valued service, learning, and self-reliance. There is a, a tradition of service in my family. I um, My father's brother, my uncle, uh, was a Green Beret in Vietnam. Three of my four grandparents served in, in World War II, in, including my grandmother on my, my father's side, was a women's air service pilot. Pete followed his brother into the Marine Corps right out of high school. He was idealistic and loved his country. Not necessarily stemming from the you know, star-spangled banner kind of patriotism and American flag t-shirts, but having um, a really deep connection to kind of holiness of place and a really love for the, the landscape and history of of our country and being idealistic and kind of wanting to see if the things that I believed about humanity and about morality and about the world could hold up at the sharp end of American foreign policy. Pete threw himself into the Marine lifestyle. He trained with guns, got in shape, studied counterinsurgency. But what he really wanted was a chance to prove himself in battle. You have to get shot at, you have to shoot back, you have to have firefights under your belt. That's what it means to be kind of confirmed in that sacrament and to be a full member of that, of that tribe. Pete was a strong supporter of concealed carry. He had the training, had a pistol, and a concealed carry license. He was a good guy with a gun. And I thought, like, oh, well, maybe I can be the one who, who makes a difference. I can be the guy who can save someone's life. It makes you feel empowered and safe. It did for me. I don't want to talk about anybody else's experiences, but it made me feel made me feel elevated that, you know, I have this grave responsibility of not just serving on the front lines as a Marine, but 
as a civilian, I can go out there and be a guardian and a protector as well. After three years, Pete finally got the combat deployment he wanted so badly. So there I am. So this is it. This is the moment where, where I have finally have the opportunity to kind of prove myself and do that. But when Pete experienced war, a lot changed. He remembers one moment in Iraq. I had the staff sergeant yelling in my ear to, to shoot this guy. And I, and I hesitated for that moment. I'm not 100% sure why. When he had the chance to kill someone, Pete didn't take the shot. I'd like to say that I wasn't sure and I wanted to be making good choices, but the truth is, too, I might just be too cowardly to do it. And the next time that guy appears, he's shielding this woman and child with his body. It was his wife and his son, and he's just trying to get out of the way of these A-10 gun runs that we're calling in. And his ideas about good guys with guns changed, too. I think what changed for me, part of it at least, was my deployment to Afghanistan. I think I saw that the chaotic nature of gunfights makes making a difference incredibly difficult. And it's difficult for a squad of Marines who are trained together and who can move in perfect unison and who have a wide variety of firearms and a lot of things at their disposal. It can still be difficult for them to achieve what they want to achieve. So just on a practical level, I wondered, is it realistic for me to think about trying to make a difference in a violent encounter if I'm armed or not. That was just a personal experience and journey for me, and so I decided to stop. I didn't carry weapons anymore, and I thought, you know, there's other ways that I can be of practical use if I ever find myself in that situation. Veterans have a unique place in American society. They take an oath to protect the Constitution. They risk their lives in service to their country. And when it comes to guns, there are few who know more than they do. In this episode, we'll hear from veterans like Pete, whose opinions about guns were shaped by their military service, and how they're using their voices in support of gun reform. Pete Lucier, I'm a Marine Corps veteran. My name is Joe Plunzer. I'm a retired Marine Corps lieutenant colonel and a combat veteran of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Stephen Kiernan, I'm a former Marine. Kylian Hunter. I've had multiple combat deployments in both Iraq and Afghanistan. My name is Kyle Hausman-Stokes. I'm a combat veteran of Iraq. We'll hear why they joined the military and why they see their advocacy for gun violence prevention back home as a continuation of their service overseas. This week on In Sickness and in Health, Veterans and Gun Reform. This is a little bit funny. I joined the military because I didn't really trust my government. (laughs) This is Joe Plenzer. As a young man, Joe was really interested in the founding fathers, especially James Madison. Madison worried about how an army could be used against the very people it was supposed to protect. Yeah, I sat down one day and I really thought about it. I said, you know, if, if I really believe these things, then I probably ought to join the military because, you know, the military needs, um, clear thinking, people to serve so that, you know, when, when uh, orders are given and, and policy is put into action, then, you know, we can have people with, uh, you know, good morals and values and, and clear thinking heads to, to direct the application of military force. Joe grew up hunting with family where he grew up in Ohio. How were guns stored in your home? Do you remember growing up? Yeah, actually poorly. You know, my dad had him in the basement, and we were taught not to touch him if he wasn't around. And uh, But 
when I look back on it, you know, we could have done a much better job when I was a kid. I mean, they were, they were just kind of kept down in the basement and the ammunition was kind of kept up on a tall shelf. But when Joe joined the Marines, he had a very different experience with safe gun storage and gun safety. The first thing you hear coming out of a, a firearms instructor's mouth in the Marine Corps is, is safety is paramount. We go through, you know, a full week of, of training before we even allow um, our Marines to, you know, put live ammunition in there. Joe says there's a lot of misconceptions about how guns are handled and stored in the military. There's a set protocol. Like the weapons are unloaded until you get to the range. You don't load them up until you get on the firing line. Once you complete that round of fire, you unload and show clear. And then before you leave the range, somebody checks through to make sure that you don't have a hot weapon or that you don't have any ammunition on you as you're going back to the, the barracks. Once you get back there, you clear them and you clean them. And then you store them in a locked armory, typically. I don't see the same level of diligence when I go out to civilian ranges. It's disappointing. But while Joe had a strict safety culture in the Marines, it took him a while to come around to safe storage with his own guns at home. To be honest with you, you know, in my adult life, it was not till 2006 that my wife was like, hey, you need to get a gun safe. And I kind of pushed back on her a little bit. And she's, she's a Marine Corps veteran as well. And she's like, no, seriously, she's like, you know, you know, you think about what would happen if somebody stole those. How would you feel? And I was like, that, that's all she needed to say. And I, you know, I called and got a gun safe the next day. Joe's wife also convinced him not to get an AR-15. It came down to having a defensive or offensive weapon. Joe thinks pistols and shotguns make better defensive weapons, especially when you're defending your home. Gun owners will go into all sorts of esoteric conversations about this. But the bottom line is, you know, in close quarters, the typical scenario, there's a home invasion or there's somebody banging on your front door at two in the morning when you're disoriented, it's dark and the situation is unclear. You know, typically, you know, a 12 gauge shotgun is about the best weapon that you can have in that situation. Compare that with an AR-15, the civilian version of the M16 many Marines train on. The assault rifle with a 30 round magazine, you know, with high, high velocity bullets in a, in a really tight environment that's your home. I mean, it, it, it's just it's just a ridiculous thing. I mean, it, a ridiculous proposition in my estimation. And the bullets used in a rifle like an AR-15, they're made for something more than home defense. When you look at the uh, 223 round or the 5.56 round that's associated with the AR-15 or the M16, I mean, those are high velocity rounds that are designed to hit, tumble, spin, and cause uh, pretty grievous wounds through cavitation. The next veteran we'll hear from, Stephen Kiernan, can attest to that. Uh, all right. I'm uh, Stephen Kiernan. I'm a former Marine. I served from 2005 to 2010. Growing up, Stephen didn't have guns in the house, but he was always interested in them. I'd always had like a fascination with them. You know, as this kid, you know, they were they were cool. You know, they made this, you know, these big sounds, and they made you feel like real powerful when you would shoot them. It wasn't until I got in the Marine Corps when I really learned, you know, about weapons how to handle them, how to use them, how to shoot them. Like Pete, Stephen says he was a patriotic kid. He supported the Iraq War, but he was looking for something else. Growing up, like, in junior high or high school, I was never, like, a big, like, tough kid. You know, I played football, but for a couple years until I broke my collarbone and then I quit. I was never, like, super popular or anything like that. So I kind of, I guess I felt this need to want to uh, prove myself. 
how do you prove you're big and tough, you know? <laughs> the ultimate thing is, you know, graduating Marine Corps boot camp. Stephen joined right out of high school. The Marines had a big impact on him. First couple of years I was in the Marines, it was really a boost in, you know, my physical fitness, a boost in my confidence. And uh, I became a lot more confident in the things I did, uh, a lot more self-disciplined and motivated. But when Stephen was deployed, tragedy struck. One day, he was hit with an IED. The explosion nearly killed him. He had to have both his legs amputated. Stephen went back to the U.S. to recover at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Being in a hospital at Walter Reed, I knew lots of people with gunshot wounds. I saw what they, the aftermath of what they look like. So you really see just how bad these, you know, what, you know, bullets and rifles can do to you. Well, I think that's an important point, too, because we tend to focus on, um, you know, the people who die from gunshot wounds, whether it's um, fighting overseas or here in this country. We don't really think about all the people who do survive and, and what their life is like afterwards. Yeah, and it's, you know, movies and television, they don't really do them justice, you know, because you, you watch a movie, someone gets shot, they, like, shake it off and keep doing whatever, <laughs> whatever, like, hero thing they were doing. But in reality, bullet wounds, especially from uh, assault rifles like uh, AK-47s or AR-15s or whatever, you know, you get shot in the leg or the arm, you know, you could lose your whole limb because it just smashes the bone, tendon, rips off all the muscle and meat. They're pretty nasty stuff. I've seen guys where they were shot in the thigh and they had, you know, a fairly small hole in the front, but in the back, like their entire back of their thigh was just a big gaping wound from where it exited out the back of them. I knew guys who had you know, taking bullet wounds or shrapnel wounds in the abdomen, and they had a colostomy bag for, you know, six months to a year. I never really could comprehend it, you know, the gravity of, you know, what these wounds were like until, you know, you're faced with it, you know, every day. Seeing the human cost of war around him at the hospital, and later adjusting to life as a double amputee at home took its toll on Stephen. PTSD, depression, and wondering, was it worth it? You kind of see everyone when you get home from Iraq or Afghanistan. And it's it's a big deal to you, but it's not a big deal to anyone else. Like, no one seems to be aware of what's going on. And eventually, you, me, myself, kind of, began to feel the same way where I was apathetic about uh, pretty much anything. You know, it's kind of this mix of apathy and trauma. A mass shooting in Las Vegas in 2017 killed 59 people and injured another 869. It made Stephen feel even more hopeless. A friend of mine was in Las Vegas when that massacre happened. I was trying to contact him. I couldn't get a hold of him. Finally, Stephen heard back from his friend. He was okay. He was one of my Marines, and he was wounded with me in Iraq. And just to think, you know, he survived that. 
just uh, you know almost get gunned down by some dude with fully automatic assault rifles back home is just that's just insane to me and how how willingly like we are to just accept that as normal in our own country I just find that particularly appalling but when the Parkland shooting happened in 2018 Stephen's apathy and frustration shifted into advocacy Stephen attended the March for Our Lives in Washington D.C. to support gun reform to see these you know young 17 18 year old kids step up and to not take no for an answer and to not accept the status quo. That made me feel feel really good as, you know, just Americans. Their motivation to want to come out and, like, make change and, you know, get people out to vote and actually do something really motivated me to finally come out and participate in uh, some activism myself. So that was one of the reasons I wanted to get out there and just show my support for them and just kind of have their back and back them up. Stephen wasn't the only veteran to speak out for the Parkland survivors. Pete Lucier and Joe Plenzer wrote an op-ed that ran in the Washington Post in support of the students. The other author of that op-ed was a decorated combat helicopter pilot in Iraq and Afghanistan, Kylie Ann Hunter. I ended up being a Cobra pilot. I flew the AH-1 Whiskey Super Cobra attack helicopter, so guns and rockets and missiles. One of the main points of the op-ed was to amplify the voices of the Parkland students. If you're old enough to get killed in school, you should be listened to about it. I mean, they're the ones who are getting affected by this the most. Um, On the other side of that is that we want to offer a place of solace for them. We know what it's like to lose friends. You know, we know what it's like to be terrified of, of noises, um, of smells, of sounds, of places, and that if there's anything we can do to help facilitate you know, their healing and help facilitate conversations, we're here for them. The Washington Post op-ed also announced a social media campaign called Vets for Gun Reform. Most importantly, we believe in facilitating conversations around why people own guns and what guns actually are. And that's where one of the biggest things I think that we can be a advocate for, because when you have honest conversations around people about why they own guns, what guns guns are, what guns are actually intended to do, you're more likely to see people want common sense legislation around them. Kylie Ann has lost friends in combat. She's lost friends and fellow veterans to gun-related suicide. Kylie Ann says there's a lot of issues at play, but in the end, it always comes down to the gun. Access to guns is what was the result, you know, of friends of mine burying their three-year-old child because, um, you know, he was a off-duty police officer. He just had his gun in his center council of the car. Two kids were left in the car while he ran inside to grab pizza, and of course they're going to be curious and they play. Too often in this country, we try to blame everything but the guns. But the one, the one constant, the one consistency is easy access to weapons, and I think more importantly than easy access to weapons, the cavalier attitude that Americans have it, when talking about weapons is responsible for a lot of unnecessary and preventable death. Kylie Ann, Joe, and Pete agree that there's a lot civilian gun culture can learn from the military. 
in the Marine Corps, honor, courage, and commitment is all about putting yourself after others, about you honoring your commitment to this this country and these ideals. And the the gun culture is all about my right to own a gun at all costs. And it doesn't matter what happens to anybody else. Kylie Ann thinks that mass shootings shouldn't have to be the price of the Second Amendment. I refuse to think that that's an American value that I that I fought for, that you know myself and so many of my sisters and brothers in arms sacrificed for, to say, you know, maybe we just need to, kids just have to die. Joe Plenzer agrees. True freedom is not being able to walk walk around everywhere you go with a loaded weapon. Right, true freedom is being able to walk around everywhere you go in public without needing one. You know, and both Kite and I have been to places and countries that literally are, are coming apart at the seams where you did need, you know, to carry loaded weapons with you everywhere you went for for your own, you know, physical safety. You know, I tell you it's it's a real unpleasant experience to to you know, live for a long for a long period of time in a place like that. And so, you know, it's uh it's a joy to come back to the United States where you know, in most places, you don't feel compelled to to carry a gun with you when you go out in public. I mean, that's a gift, and that's something that we should strive to retain within the United States. After the Parkland shooting, Vets for Gun Reform put out a public message from veterans calling for change. My name is Kyle Hausman Stokes. I'm a filmmaker based in Los Angeles. I'm a combat veteran of Iraq. I was in the Army for five years. I served in the infantry. Kyle's PSA showed veterans from every branch of the military calling for gun violence prevention. The PSA opens with a veteran standing in a movie set version of an Iraqi village. I served in the U.S. Army. I served in the Navy. Air Force. Marine Corps. When he put a call out for volunteers, the response was overwhelming. It was crazy. I think we had over 2,000 submissions to be a part of this thing in just like 48 hours. That was just in L.A. My service weapon was an M16. It's basically the same. You know what? It is the same as the AR-15. Same weapon that's killed hundreds of people in the deadliest mass shootings in America. I know the power of this weapon firsthand. 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 And there is no reason. No reason. No reason why anyone other than military and law enforcement should have an assault weapon like this. The way that we ended the PSA was by each of the veterans kind of sound, what we call sounding off. They would say, hey, uh, my name is Staff Sergeant Houseman. Corporal Henderson. Staff Sergeant Sason. Corporal De Jesus. Specialist Del. Captain Vernier. Senior Airman Rice. Specialist Parker. Petty Officer Williams. My name is Sergeant Bell. And, and I, I support, support the ban on military-style assault rifles and safer gun laws in this country. The video went online March 24, 2018, the same day as the March for Our Lives in Washington, D.C. After the PSA debuted, maybe even more special to me than the view count were the comments. People would comment on the video, whether it be on Facebook or Twitter, and they would sound off and they would say the exact same thing. So in a way, it was kind of like this digital echo of voices that um, I just, I, I, I wish we could use that in some way to kind of show how many veterans out there feel the same way. Of course, not all veterans support gun reform. Here's Stephen Kiernan again. Since the March for Our Lives, where I got involved, um, 
with a couple of interviews, um, and then on social media, we're posting, especially with the hashtag uh, Vets for Gun Reform. A lot of people on the pro-gun side, the pro-NRA side, they don't really want to hear what we have to say. I've just gotten a lot of you know, hate messages of people calling me an oathbreaker. That slur, oathbreaker, hits Stephen hard, especially when it comes from other veterans. It suggests that because he doesn't support an absolutist view of the Second Amendment, he's breaking his oath to protect the Constitution. Stephen sees a double standard when it comes to when and how veterans can speak up. Conservatives on the right, especially the NRA, has kind of latched on to veterans as to be like their spokesman because they're kind of playing off the support the troops post 9-11 world that we live where, you know, if you're a vet, somehow you can never be questioned or anything said against you is somehow disrespecting the troops. So they kind of use vets as a shield to guard against any kind of criticism from outside groups. But that somehow doesn't translate (laughs) to the other way, where all of a sudden, if you're a veteran and you're going against the conservative right-leaning grain of most veterans, then you somehow surrendered your right to any kind of uh, opinion or any benefit of the doubt because you served. So that's kind of disappointing to deal with when you got other, you know, for other Marines yelling at you, calling you an oathbreaker, stuff like that. Not the kind of camaraderie and brothership they teach you in the military. Veterans are not a monolith. There are many who support gun reform and many who don't. But for those who do support gun violence prevention, they don't see it as an attack on the Second Amendment. They see gun safety as a continuation of their public service. Here's Kylie Ann Hunter. I come in as a gun owner and a veteran. Um, I'm not trying to rip apart the Second Amendment. I am trying to be commonsensical about what's going to save lives. Most importantly, I bring a commitment to continue to protect Americans and to save American lives. And I think being able to continue that um, in my civilian career is very, very important. Pete Lucier. I'm just really glad that I've had the opportunity to participate in some way because I think it's a continuation of my service. Um, This is another way I can give back to a country that's given me a lot and a lot of opportunity and a lot of benefits. I I hope that I participated in in keeping Americans safe when I served abroad and I hope that what I'm doing now continues to keep Americans safe here here at home. That's it. Like moms and students, veterans have brought new energy and expertise to the gun violence prevention movement. They've been steeped in military gun culture. It's a culture that places tremendous emphasis on gun safety. And yet, even among vets, there's disagreement on gun reform. And those who do speak in favor of such reforms often come under attack from their peers and civilians who practice a different kind of gun culture. In our next episode, we'll hear from yet another group that's stepping up, doctors and other healthcare providers like me. That's next time on In Sickness and in Health.
In Sickness and in Health is brought to you by Just Human Productions. Today's episode was produced by Zach Dyer and me. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music by the Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. You can learn more about this podcast, how to engage with us on social media, and how to become a member and support the podcast at InSicknessAndInHealthPodcast.com. That's InSicknessAndInHealthPodcast.com. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and In Health.